Inside Florida Politics, powered by Gannett. Governor Ron DeSantis' administration fines Leon County over its vaccine mandate for employees. Florida leaders don't seem interested in doing the type of election audit that Trump has been demanding elsewhere. And the governor attracts attention for following his policy announcements with fundraising pitches. Hello, I'm Sarasota Herald Tribune political editor Zach Anderson. And those are some of the stories I'll be discussing today with Gannett State Capitol reporter John Kennedy and Palm Beach Post politics editor Antonio Fins. But first... That music means it's number time. Uh, gentlemen, you have some numbers this week. John, how about you? Yeah, Zach, I'm here today with a four. I've used this number before, but it's still a fab four to me. All right, fab four. How about you, Antonio? Oh, when John goes high, I go low. I got a two. Man, uh, well, I got you guys beat by a mile. My number is 8.4 million. Remember those numbers, folks. We'll tell you what they mean in Florida politics at the end of the show. Well, the mask wars are giving way to the vax wars as Governor Ron DeSantis' administration ramps up his battle against vaccine passports and mandates. The state this week announced a fine of $3.57 million against Leon County for requiring all 714 county employees to get vaccinated with limited exceptions. That's a fine of $5,000 per employee. The county is fighting the fine, but it sends a message to other employers that they are courting trouble with vaccine mandates. John, is this the the next big battle for DeSantis in the COVID wars? Well, it sure does look like this is going to be the governor's next campaign with the uh, the State Department of Health announcing it's reviewing more than 100 Florida businesses, uh, cities, and event venues for, for asking patrons to prove that they were vaccinated before they were allowed uh, access to these uh, locations or uh, receive services there. Um, you know, DeSantis has that anti-vaccine passport law that he pushed through a very willing legislature this year, and he's using it now to threaten Florida organizations like the, the Miami Marlins, uh, Starbucks, Disney Cruise Lines and uh, and a host of local governments, theaters, convention centers and libraries. Uh, those are the kind of organizations that have uh, imposed these uh, vaccine requirements. Uh, they, they they want people to be vaccinated before they sit together uh, elbow to elbow in, a, in their in their facility. Um, violators could be fined $5,000 for every person that they want to see vaccinated under that new law. And uh, that's kind of how they translated the uh, the whopping fine that they imposed on Leon County. Now, um, there, there's been some pushback from some organizations on the list. Uh, Alachua County, for example, was on the list, but insists it is not requiring people to be vaccinated to enter a county facility or Go, or go to work. Um, but Leon has been fined and uh, it's it's defiant with the, the county administrator accusing uh, DeSantis of being more interested in politics than public po- uh, public health. Um, you know, all told, that would make uh, county administrator Vince Long about the, the millionth Floridian to make that same claim about the governor. But the, uh, the governor does seem to have the law on his side, the law that he wanted created and which a uh, compliant Republican-controlled legislature agreed to enact. But, John, that law that law focused on, like, vaccine passports, didn't it? That was, like, requiring your customers to a business or people getting on a cruise ship or something to, to be vaccinated. Um, it, but Leon County is actually requiring its employees to be vaccinated, which is a little bit different. But I guess they're saying this does cover public – 
um, employers as well, and the, but they're not going after private employers like Disney that um, is requiring employees to get vaccinated? Well, I think now that Disney could be next uh, huh. under this. It, it, it appears that that's the direction that they're going when they put together this list of uh, 100, you know, private businesses predominantly that, um, you know, could be threatened with fines. So I think, you know, it, it's a shot across the bow, as they say, you know, for uh, for these companies now. Um, uh, you know, the, the governor, uh, as we've pointed out before, is clearly a believer in the herd immunity approach to fighting COVID. And uh, even though public health experts say that safety techniques like masking and vaccinating and social distancing help. But uh, with DeSantis at the wheel, you know, we've lost 57,300 Floridians to COVID and 3.6 million have been sickened. But uh, the numbers and the hospitalizations have been easing in recent weeks from the uh, really house on fire levels that we saw back in July and August. So it, it seems, DeSantis seems to think now is the time to strike against businesses. You know, some of them decidedly Republican supporting, but also concerned mm-hmm. about the health and safety of their customers and employers, um, employees, I should say. Um, and of course, these are these are companies uh, that that are pretty much reliable Republican donors too. And we haven't heard a peep from organizations like the Florida Chamber of Commerce or the Associated Industries of Florida. These uh, Republican allied organizations who represent businesses who you know now are are the target for the governor. So I, it's hard to tell if, if if these companies are going to fight or are they going to fold. And uh, they're also dealing with the. Uh, the, the prospect of a federal vaccine mandate that the Biden administration has promoted. That's, the, you know, where the governor is uh, also focusing his attack. He, he is a starkly uh, cast President Biden and his call for vaccine requirements for employers with more than 100 employees. Uh, he, he calls that a big government overreach. You know, without being aware of the irony, he said this week, quote, this has become about politicians wanting to control people. Well, okay, Governor, it looks like you're the one who loves to be in control. And again, he does have the law on his side right now. Whether that gets undermined in a court challenge, that's possible. But it's uh, probably more likely that these businesses will side with the uh, course of least resistance and uh, just drop the vaccine requirements and exceed to the politicians wanting to control people. But they're but they're kind of uh, between a rock and a hard place because the federal government, uh, the Biden administration through the Occupational Health and Safety uh, Administration is saying that every employer with more than 100 employees has to require uh, vaccination. And so, um, you know, if the governor is going to fight that, I mean, what do businesses do? Do they comply with the federal government or do they comply with the, the state government? Yeah, that, that, that's a that's a paradox for these companies. Uh, I, I don't know how they get through that narrow uh, needle because it's one of these things where um, the Biden administration has not yet uh, introduced that rule. So for the moment, that rule, uh, you know, for all practical purposes, is not in effect. But uh, that's where DeSantis maybe has this window right now that he's able to uh, focus on uh, uh, fining, you know, wh- right. whoever he wants to find. And the reality is, is that who knows how much the federal government is going to enforce this? Maybe DeSantis is trying to draw a line in the sand and, and get some attention with this fine against Leon County that the state is going to be aggressive with this. So you should pay attention to what the state is doing and not what the feds are doing. But uh, we'll see how this plays out. 
Well, even while DeSantis was catering to a GOP base that opposes vaccine mandates with his efforts to punish Leon County, he declined this week to indulge another preoccupation of many Republicans and former President Donald Trump, which is the effort to conduct more election audits around the country. Trump continues to harp on the false claim that the 2020 election was rife with fraud, and he's been pushing for states and counties to follow the example of Maricopa County in Arizona, which hired a Florida cybersecurity firm named Cyber Ninjas to conduct an outside audit of ballots. The Arizona election audit has been highly contentious, and the results didn't even help Trump. It found that Biden won the state, but the audit idea has been catching fire with the GOP base. So it was notable that DeSantis came out this week during a press conference and said Florida already has done enough audits and had enough safeguards in place to ensure the confidence in the election. Florida Secretary of State Laurel Lee said the same thing during an appearance later in the week. Antonio, DeSantis typically has been willing to indulge the base, but not on this. Are you surprised? Well, you know, Zach, I I was surprised, but right now I'm also kind of skeptical. Look, by that I mean that by the time we're done taping this podcast, the governor's position may have changed. Why? Well, because on Wednesday, The former president fired off this press release. Let me read it to you in our audience. Quote, unquote, if we don't solve the presidential election fraud of 2020, Republicans will not be voting in 22 or 24. It is the single most important thing for Republicans to do. Gentlemen, is that clear enough? Basically, Trump is saying, you know, push for an all-out assault on the 2020 election or forget about my support. And I don't know about you, but I don't see a carve out there for Florida or an exception for DeSantis. So it's true, but don't you think like in states that he won, there might be a less less pressure than in states that he lost? Uh, unless, yeah, yes. And I've talked to a couple of people, and I, yes, that that there's actually should be no pressure in states that he won, unless the issue is that the goal isn't just to look at the electoral college vote, but perhaps looking at the overall seven million dollar seven million vote gap between Biden. And, and Trump, and, and maybe he figures that in these states that he won, they can find enough votes to say basically say at the end of the day that he even won the popular vote. Who, who knows? But look, the other the issue here is, you know, look, DeSantis, yes, like you said, Zach, he said this week that, that Florida already has done enough audits and had enough safeguards in place to ensure confidence in the election. However, let's face it, the governor's trajectory on this all along has been to say, has been to say one thing today and then follow Trump's line tomorrow. You know, go back to July of last year when Trump called for suspending the 2020 elections because of the pandemic and concerns about mail-in voting. And DeSantis that very day came back and, and pushed back and say, no, that he defended Florida's mail-in balloting, balloting process, saying the state that, you know, did not send mass ballots to every address. And, you know, you know, he said, that's not what we do in Florida, that we have the vote by, Florida has a vote by mail. And, you know, that there's a verification. It's a process that has worked well. And he said, quote unquote, I support Florida system. Fast forward to the February conservative uh, political action conference in Orlando that we covered, where panelists in a session on election reforms praised Florida, you know, which the panelists said got it right. And then two days later, DeSantis took a victory lap during that state of the state speech to open the 2021 Florida legislative session. You know, and he, again, defended Florida system. But then two months later, where was he? Well, he was here in West Palm Beach at the uh, Trump fan club, Club 45. And he appeared on a Fox News program to sign, you know, the basically, you know, Senate Bill 90, which was a, a bill to, you know, 
quote unquote, election reforms, as Republicans called it, voter restrictions, as Democrats called it. But at the end of the line, at the end of the day, it's it's to basically curb mail in balloting. So, you know, which is why a gentleman, you know, a Democratic strategist this week predicted it's only a matter of time before DeSantis accedes to Trump's demand and calls for bamboo search of ballots. So Zach and John, hey, get out your hanging Chad magnifying glasses because we may seem be soon covering a 2020 election audit in Florida. Yeah, I mean, despite what DeSantis said this week, it doesn't seem like the issue uh, is going away at all when you have Trump uh, loudly declaring that uh, Republicans are going to stay home in 2022 and 2024 if they don't do this. I mean, that seemed like a not so subtle threat to Republican leaders that uh, you better you better get on board with this. So, um, again, we'll, we'll see where that goes in Florida. You would think that there would be less pressure on Republicans here, considering that Trump won the state by more than three percentage points. But who knows? Well, lastly, I wanted to talk about a story uh, that you did last week, John, that was a really interesting story that looked at the governor's penchant for pairing public policy announcements with fundraising pitches. You really dug into the governor's policy proposals over the last year and how they've aligned with his re-election campaign and the cash that he's bringing in. What did you find? Well, uh, what I found uh, just with uh, some, some looking back at uh, the governor's actions and then some of the asks that he has made is that there's a real synergy between the governor uh, you know, acting and then turning around and uh, sending out fundraising pitches for uh, uh, touting the thing that he had just done. Uh, I started noticing that as the governor uh, began introducing some, you know, kind of high-profile national policies. They were almost immediately followed with a fundraising pitch from his friends of Ron DeSantis' political committee. Uh, he called for an investigation of Facebook very recently, and within 48 hours, uh, a fundraising email went out from Team DeSantis. And then, of course, in recent weeks, uh, solicitations have gone out that were were tied to his announcing the state's lawsuit against President Biden over his handling of migrants at the Mexican border. The uh, governor's proposal for $5,000 signing bonuses aimed at helping Florida attract law enforcement. Uh, you know, that's amid criticism from the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, police forces uh, are down in personnel. So the governor is uh, proposing a, a $5,000 bonus for the legislature to approve next year. And um, then, uh, of course, his resistance to the uh, federal government's renewed p uh, push that happened uh, earlier this summer, um, kind of during the midsummer COVID spike, the federal government was talking about trying to uh, enhance more mask regulations. So, you know, all these uh, involved, you know, uh, uh, an email follow-up from the governor saying, please contribute. Uh, you, know, you know, very recently, when DeSantis uh, was speaking to reporters at the Florida Capitol just last month, um, he, he criticized the Biden administration for reducing Florida's uh, supply of uh, monoclonal antibodies that uh, are used to treat COVID-19 patients, while, while video of his comments was quickly sent out to donors. And below the statement uh, was the, quote, uh, you know, chip in button uh, that directs uh, donors to contribute. So, um, you know, the, the, I look back, you know, th this year alone, the governor has raised $51.2 million, 44% of it from contributors outside Florida. That's according to uh, the records from his own uh, t friends of Ron DeSantis campaign. And uh, and like the, the Facebook appeal, um, you know, many of the governor's official actions really look aimed at a national Republican base, which 
as we have often spoken about, they're already eyeing him as a potential White House contender in three years. Um, you know, his campaign is constantly fishing for funds, and uh, now it's using his official uh, public policies as bait. Now, you know, past governors in Florida have gotten in trouble for uh, using state aircraft to attend a political event of some kind. But uh, this governor has taken it uh, into the digital age with policy now followed by an email fundraising appeal. Um, you know, it has some good government types asking whether the governor is taking these steps because he is uh, genuinely committed to something that he sees as affecting his state, like the Texas border problem with migrants. He he's made a case that he's having an, a, that, that 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 is having an effect on labor and drugs coming into Florida. But, um, you know, you can argue whether that's true or not. But when an eye catching lawsuit against the Biden administration is filed by Florida, and then it's quickly followed by an appeal to donate. Uh, you've got to wonder if uh, you know the tail is wagging the dog here. Um, is he throwing out ideas that he knows will keep his name alive and have some fundraising appeal to donors, uh, especially those outside the state? Uh, a spokesman for uh, Nikki Freed, the uh, state's uh, Democratic Agriculture Commissioner, who's uh, running against DeSantis next year for governor, uh, told me that uh, DeSantis is, uh, the quote was, uh, his, his official actions mirror Fox News Channel programming. And, uh, you know, it, it really does a lot of times seem to have that parallel. So um, that, that's kind of where we're at with DeSantis. Uh, he's found a new avenue to uh, to raise cash, and that's uh, enacting policies that uh, Floridians have to live under. John, do you think this is limited to DeSantis or is this kind of how politics is 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 working uh, these days that, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of focus on these uh, hot button national issues that tend to uh, get uh, partisans on either side fired up and, and the, the, his, the campaigns are sort of taking advantage of that? Well, there is some of that, um, though I think a lot of times what you're seeing from uh, DeSantis's opponents right now in Florida, they're not always touting uh, so much what they have done, uh, you know, in their official capacity as much as, uh, the, you know, they're focusing on what the governor is doing. Uh, I, I say that by way of that's the the, the fundraising pitches from Freed and uh, uh, Congressman Charlie Chris, the other Democrat, prominent Democrat that's running against uh, DeSantis. They seem to be more targeting the governor himself as, uh, as uh, you know, their fundraising tool. They're not citing what they have done in, in their official capacity. And I think that's a little bit of the distinction with DeSantis right now. He seems to be linking his... Uh, official actions with the fundraising appeal. Yeah, and it's pretty interesting that the campaigns and the official side are supposed to be um, separate, and I'm sure the governor's office would say that they are, but there's obviously, uh, when you see a fundraising appeal go out so quickly after a policy announcement, it makes you wonder um, just about um, the synergy there. But well, lastly, we'll move on to uh, some numbers here. I guess we'll go from lowest to highest. Antonio, you had uh, two. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, gentlemen. Two is the number of uh, charities that have rescheduled their major fundraising galas at former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago Club. Let, let me explain a bit. Uh, before he was president, Trump's Mar-a-Lago arguably stood as a mar the marquee venue for the opulent philanthropic winter galas that served to raise millions of dollars while you know, basically giving a, a really nice evening out to some of the who's who of deep pocket donors. Some of these organizations were like, for example, the International Red Cross and the Dana-Farber Institute in Boston. But then after Trump's first year in office, 
Roughly two dozen of these nonprofits pulled their events from the club, most of them after Trump sparked a political firestorm by drawing moral equivalency between clashing white supremacist marchers and protesters opposing them in Charlottesville, Virginia in August of uh, 2017. These philanthropic galas were big money makers for Trump and Mar-a-Lago. So the club, by then dubbed the Southern White House by the former president and his aides, then filled many of these vacated dates with political events that generated both replacement revenues for the club, as well as dollars for Trump's ultimately unsuccessful 2020 re-election campaign. Now, though, some of these charities have quietly tiptoed back to Mar-a-Lago for the winter social season that starts around Halloween and then ends after Mother's Day. The latest two to tiptoe back are Baskin Palmer Eye Institute and the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And by the way, the, the political events seem to still be there. In fact, the Trumpets fan club has booked what could be the top billing night of the season, the, the Saturday evening of Super Bowl weekend. Still, that two more major charities have opted to reschedule their events at Mar-a-Lago this coming season was perplexing to both some Republican and Democratic ethics watchdogs. They noted that, for example, that Trump still remains mired in controversies, not least of which is undermining public confidence in U.S. elections and his role in urging his supporters in what became an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol in a coup attempt back on January 6th. Uh, Baskin Palmer did not, respond to a re did not respond to a request by the Palm Beach Post for comment as to why they decided to return to Mar-a-Lago. Uh, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society said basically selected Mar-a-Lago for its January gala because of logistical reasons. You know, in the era of the pandemic, the organization, like many others, still wants to return to in-person events with hundreds of attendees after, after the shutdown basically, you know, canceled most of those big in-person uh, gatherings a year ago. They, they'd like to go back to it. And they, they said the Mar-a-Lago is a better place logistically to do that. Or maybe it was when one Palm Beacher told us, quote unquote, people just have a short memory in America. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, interesting. Mar-a-Lago uh, uh, getting uh, back into the swing of things there. John, uh, you had a, a four. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, Zach, uh, four represents the number of months that the Florida legislature devoted in 2011, 10 years ago, to public hearings around the state uh, prior to the beginning of the redistricting process uh, later that winter. Uh, lawmakers traveled around the state from July through October, holding more than two dozen public hearings, listening to citizens talk about what they'd like to see when the new boundaries were drawn for congressional districts and for state house and Senate seats. Now, now that was a big roadshow, uh, obviously, uh, long before anybody knew anything about the coronavirus. And uh, Floridians were able to tell the House and Senate redistricting leaders about what they'd like, uh, a lot of it being people talking about the importance of keeping a neighborhood together in a state house district, maybe, or uh, an entire city in a congressional district. The uh, the oddities of the districts that were in place at the time, uh, you, you know, maybe drew some complaints. Maybe a community was split between two districts or maybe outnumbered voters from one party were in a district but wanted to have the new lines drawn so that they'd have more impact in another district and, um, you know, have a better chance to elect somebody that they felt would better represent them. So uh, th those were the kind of uh, comments that they were hearing in these public hearings. And uh, the hearings got a lot of buy-in from the public. But uh, in the end, uh, as, as we now know, three years of lawsuits eventually showed that ruling Republicans at the time had sort of hijacked some of these hearings and used them to have uh, seemingly average citizens submit 
proposed district maps that actually have been drawn by Republican consultants to uh, favor incumbents or the party. Uh, those were violations of the state constitution and ultimately uh, contributed to the courts drawing the congressional and Senate plans we now use. The House districts had gone unchallenged by the Democrats and their allies, so they, they are still what the legislature drew in 2012. But um, that's a little bit background uh, on, on public hearings in Florida. But this time around, we're just in the beginning stages of redistricting. But the question of holding public hearings seems to be a troubling one for the latest crop of uh, these ruling Republicans in Tallahassee. Uh, they're, they, they say that they've gotten the census data late from the federal government, uh, which is true uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, and they suggest that the state is somewhat behind schedule, uh, but that they are uh, intent and will improve uh, approve maps by the time that the legislature adjourns in March. The uh, session begins in January, by the way. Uh, but, but Democrats have been asking repeatedly for public hearings, basically to hear from voters what they might want to see in these districts. But Republican chairman of the redistricting committee uh, so far are, are very noncommittal. It, it's frankly somewhat difficult to understand their reluctance, but these Republican chairs in these first couple of rounds of committee hearings that have taken place, they, they, they've tended to read scripted remarks to their committee. Um, it, it suggests that they fear, you know, straying off these scripts and saying anything that might be used against them in a court of law, which uh, undoubtedly is where Democrats will get a chance to challenge whatever concerns they have with these maps. Uh, the Democrats right now aren't asking for a big roadshow. They've suggested Zoom hearings of some kind, but even those suggestions have been very coolly received by the Republican chairs. That's a uh, Representative Tom Leake of Ormond Beach and uh, Senator Ray Rodriguez of Estero. But uh, so far, they have they've they've listened to these requests and kind of hinted that Zoom hearings, you know, could be considered. But they haven't said yes. Um, Rodriguez has gone the farthest with his explanation about why maybe no public hearings. He said that uh, court hearings, uh, I'm sorry, court decisions that have uh, occurred uh, since the in over the last 10 years that involve redistricting have have reduced the role of public hearings in shaping district boundaries. He uh, insists that the the concept of communities of interest are no longer a consideration, except when dealing with uh, racial communities or language communities, perhaps. But uh, when it comes to map making, uh, the, the legislators under Florida law and national law don't have to really worry about keeping neighborhoods together. Um, so uh, public hearings around the state aren't really needed, they say, uh, but uh, Democrats and the League of Women Voters and the Fair Districts Coalition, they're arguing that limiting public participation in this once a decade process, that's going to shape Florida's political balance. And it's far too important to uh, be relegated to citizens being able to express their opinions in an online comments box which is effectively the avenue that the uh, Republican leaders are emphasizing instead of public hearing. So, um, you know, here we are, uh, early stages of redistricting, but we have a simmering fight already over something as simple as giving voters a chance to comment on what most people agree is one of the most significant political steps that the state will take. And uh, this tension is happening way before we'll see any legislative maps being drawn. Uh, that is not likely to happen now until at least uh, November in the Senate and uh, likely later in the House.
the possibility, John, of of no public hearings. That's what you're hearing. That uh, there won't yeah. be any anything. I think that is a, a strong possibility. You know, th- this whole redistricting process is is kind of perplexing to me. I mean, do you have any idea? Like, so they're not going to be. They, they are accepting like public maps. You can submit them on a website yes. or whatever. But it, how are they going to? draw these in the end i mean is it's just going to be their consultants submit some maps and they're going to say here's the maps or i mean do you get a sense of like is there going to be any like sort of public aspect of this where people are seeing how these maps are being drawn well uh for now it sounds like uh what the senate is looking to do is uh have their committee staff create a couple of maps of, of maps hmm. that they will that they will put in play for a review uh i believe in this next round of committee hearings in november and uh then you know uh legislators can amend those maps just like a bill you know they can put they can put their own maps on those maps and uh it'll begin from there and then there would be some public input during those committee hearings (laughs) where the maps are seen but there won't be these big full-blown sort of um uh, meetings in various communities like we've seen in the past. Right. It doesn't sound like that's going to happen at all. Not not perhaps even via Zoom. And again, the only uh, suspicion that I can take, because again, the, the legislators are very uh, tight lipped on this, but it seems like th- they do not want anything entered into the public record, like a public hearing that hmm. might suggest that uh, the maps that they come up with, uh, you know, fall short or fail to do something. Um, because I think the Republicans fear those being avenues for the Democrats to exploit in a uh, in a lawsuit. Well, it definitely seems like uh, the legislature is a lot more cautious about redistricting this time around after getting burned the last time. We'll see where that ends up. My number is $8.4 million. That's the amount of money that Florida Congresswoman Val Demings raised in the third quarter as she challenges Marco Rubio for a U.S. Senate seat. That's really an enormous uh, third quarter haul for Demings, a Democrat and the former uh, police chief in Orlando. The fundraising figure confirms that the matchup between Demings and Rubio is probably the marquee Senate race of 2022 nationwide, really, and one that will uh, really be closely watched across the entire country uh, when you have somebody raising uh, money like that. It's really one of the few races where Democrats are expected to be uh, on offense and have a shot at, at knocking off an incumbent uh, GOP senator and a, and a pretty high profile one uh, when you consider that Rubio uh, ran for president and is probably one of the best known uh, senators uh, in the country. Rubio isn't going to be easy to unseat, though. He raised six million last quarter, which is also a, a really really big number. Uh, and, and he really does have a lot of advantages in a state that has been leaning Republican for a while now. Well, that wraps up another episode of Inside Florida Politics. I want to thank our audio production guru, Thomas Cordy. And thanks to all of you for listening. Stay safe. We're out of here. <laughs>